What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty. Been here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I had the immense pleasure of sitting now with Christopher Allen and Wolf McNally from the Blockchain Commons Initiative, which is trying to create better standards for Bitcoin software, particularly uh, around wallet software and how wallet providers should be building their wallets to be interoperable with each other to eliminate friction for users in the future. Fascinating conversation. It's an honor to have them on. I mean, Christopher, I've been asking him to come on the podcast for years. He finally reached out recently and said, hey, it's time. I've got, I've got things to talk about. So we talked about them. Uh, did a little demo here. If you want to see the demo and you're listening to the audio uh, format, we did do a good job of describing what was going on in the demo. But if you want to see it uh, on a computer screen, this is live on uh, YouTube and Bitcoin TV as well. Uh, so you can go check it out there. If you want to see the, the seed tool demo with, uh, with Sparrow Wallet, it's pretty cool. Do recommend it. Um, other than that, listen to it. There are some gray beards here teaching us some some important lessons of TFTC. It was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Don't know if you guys saw it. You might not have it yet. I don't want to like tease you if you don't have it yet. But uh, Cash App enabled Lightning Network payments this week. I got it. I paid a Lightning Network invoice using the Cash App. It worked flawlessly. Uh, TFTC.io/slash/contribute. Uh, tested it out there. Uh, it, it works. Cash App is the easiest way to stack Bitcoin. They're integrating Bitcoin more into their their products. Not only that, they're they're integrating uh, innovative uh, Bitcoin tools into their product suite as well. Lightning Network being the most recent. So uh, yes, I have it now. Many of you don't. You will have it. I imagine in the future it's going to be rolled out to everybody. I would imagine. Um, if not, then. I'll have fun using the Lightning Network. Well, you guys aren't, but I'm sure you will be able to. If you haven't downloaded the Cash App yet, make sure you use the code stacking stats. S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. <laughs> this room was also brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. Vault product is the uh, epitome of, of this ethos. The epitome. I, can't, I never use the right word. It is what uh, really highlights their their drive to eliminate single points of failure in your security model. Unchained is here to be a partner. They're not some faceless company. They're not some app. They want to help you secure your generational wealth, not only for your life, but your children's life, your grandchildren's life. They want to be a partner in securing your Bitcoin if you haven't uh, interacted with their vault pro product yet and you're thinking about it, they have a white glove concierge service It's going to take you from zero to having a multi-sig vault set up to two or three multi-sig where you hold two keys, Unchained holds one. You always have control over your Bitcoin, but if you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there for that second and the two or three signature quorum. White glove concierge service comes with video conference calls. They're going to get you hardware wallets. They're going to get everything set up. They're going to get you comfortable and they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into the vault after it's all set up. Use the code TFTC or just tell them the TFTC sent you. I don't think it's a code. You just have to tell them, hey, TFTC sent me. You'll get $50 off that package, uh, which is which is a beautiful thing. Go check it out. And everything else they have going on on Shane, including uh, the incredible content they have. They're rolling out their IRA product. It should be completely rolled out now at this point. Uh, they have their, their lending decks too, if you want to use your Bitcoin as collateral. Go check all of it out at unchained.com. This trip is also brought to you by a good friend that brings 
Brains, Brains with two eyes, B R A I I N S dot com is their website. And if you go there, you're going to find a bunch of things. Brains is the team behind Slush Pool. There's a team behind Brains OS Plus auto tuning firmware. If you're running an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it, you were leaving sats on the table. It's as simple as that. Go to brains.com, check out the Brains OS Plus uh, page, check out what miners are compatible with it. If you have a miner that's hashing, it's compatible with Brains. Download the firmware on. If you're pointing your hash at slush pool after downloading that firmware, you're going to get 0% pool fees. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, they've also got insights.brains.com. If you want to figure out everything you need to know in the mining industry, they have a one-stop shop at insights.brains.com. That'll give you mining profitability, uh, the cost of mining Bitcoin, uh, network hash rate statistics, difficulty, pool statistics. It's all there at insights.brains.com. Shout out Adam. Adam. <laughs> Adam. I'm sorry, Daniel. I'm going to say Daniel. From, so I don't know why I say Adam. I caught myself right away. I'm sorry, Daniel. It, it was a, a a child of of Daniel's mind during the having of 2020. Uh, this rip was also brought to you. Go to brains.com. Check out all that. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you guys a non-custodial, no KYC, no AML lending platform. You go to lend.hoddlehoddle.com. There you'll be able to put your Bitcoin up as collateral to get stablecoin liquidity. Uh, it's a beautiful thing because they're leveraging multi-sig as well. So if you go to get a loan, what you'll do is you'll create a two or three multi-sig. You'll hold a key. Your counterparty will hold a key and Hoddle Hoddle will hold the third key. You won't have control of the Bitcoin in that collateralized multi-sig wallet, that escrow wallet, uh, for obvious reasons. You don't want to put it in there. get stable coins and you run with the Bitcoin. That just wouldn't work. It wouldn't be a viable product. But you do have that one key, which gives you visibility into that wallet so that you know that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated. So you can have peace of mind as you're paying back that stable coin loan. Uh, you're, if you pay it back plus the interest, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Alternatively, if you're a stable coin guy or gal and you want to uh, get some or some yield on uh, your stable coins that are just sitting there, you can put it up in uh, this um, lending platform and lend it out to get uh, your principal back plus interest, so a little yield on that Bitcoin uh, or the stable coin, excuse me. Go check all this out at lend.hodlhodl.com. No KYC, no AML. Non-custodial. Beautiful thing. Beautiful thing the Hoddle Hoddle team's doing. Last but not least, Bitcoin 2022 is the largest Bitcoin event in the world that takes place April 6th to 9th. 6th to 9th, 6th to 9th, 6th to 9th. Nice. In Miami Beach, Florida. All four days will be jam-packed with exclusive content, exciting announcements, and an incredible lineup of Bitcoin speakers, artists, and leaders. Day one is Industry Day for entrepreneurs and enterprising, excuse me, Bitcoiners who are looking to build a business or a career within the ecosystem. Days two and three are general conference days featuring speakers like El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, uh, CEOs like Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Maulers, Adam Back, and hundreds more. The conference caps off with the fourth day with the world's first and largest Bitcoin music festival. Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic, featuring artist Kay Flay, M0, Royal and the Serpent, Apache, Asadi, and more. I know one of those. I'm getting old. Stay tuned for the upcoming lineup announcement. Last year's conference sold out, and this year's is on pace to be three times larger, so make sure you grab your tickets before it's too late. As is tradition, we're going to be doing a live rabbit hole recap at the conference. Matt and I will be. So visit b.tc slash conference to learn more. Ticket prices are going to increase on January 14th, which is uh, a little over 24 hours, about uh, da, 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 31 hours from the recording of this ad right now. 
Um, so use the code TFTC before January 14th. You're going to get 10% off. If you use it after January 14th, you're still going to get 10% off. That's the code TFTC. Uh, however, you'll be getting 10% off a higher price after the 14th. So go check all this out and enjoy this episode with Christopher Allen and Wolf McNally. I certainly did. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here on a lovely Wednesday afternoon. Finally, Christopher Allen, uh, we've been DMing for years, and you've been saying, uh, I'll come on the podcast when, when we actually have something to show. Uh, and it seems like we're here. We're sitting down with Christopher Allen and Wolf McNally from the Blockchain Commons. They're working on very important standardization of, of Bitcoin software, and I'm very excited for today's conversation. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, again, like I was saying before we hit hit record here, I think what you guys are working on the blockchain commons specifically is very underappreciated in the space. We've we've talked about it in years past in episodes of this podcast, standardization of some parts of the Bitcoin code so that you have interoperability uh, between different wallet softwares, hardware wallets, uh, mobile wallets, desktop wallets, whatever it may be, so that and Bitcoiners can just pick up tools and expect that they'll work uh, and be interoperable with other tools. You guys have been applying and trying to bring this to market at Blockchain Commons, and it revolves around what you guys describe as Gordian principles. I guess that's where I'd like to start today is the Gordian principle model, what, a, uh, what you're applying it to, and how it goes into the ethos of all the products that you guys are building. Great. So yeah, um, my name is Christopher Ann. Uh, Christopher, it seems like you may have just did it. Oh, How did there that it happen? is. Uh, muted you. You're good. Uh, my name is Christopher Allen, and I've been doing open infrastructure for a very long time. I'm the co-author of the TLS 1.0 standard, which, of course, now is the world's dominant security protocol. Um, I did that in the 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, trillions of dollars of commerce are using it. So this is an area that I'm passionate about. And, uh, uh, you know, with my uh, entree into Bitcoin five years ago, uh, this has very much, you know, been on my mind of how do we uh, create a strong foundation for all of this um, that can last for, you know, decades or even centuries. So, um I've taken a lot of, you know, what and how uh, uh, things like TLS evolved, the community, the ecosystem, some of the best practices there, and the best practices from Bitcoin. I was uh, a, a principal architect at Blockstream. I've been involved with a number of different projects uh, in the early days of, of Bitcoin. Uh, but I really felt like there was the whole foundation was underserved, um, especially in the area of interoperability. So we started working on that, what, two and a half, three years ago, seriously. 
um, with different aspects of things, uh, in particular, um, have been these Gordian projects. So, uh, as many people know, Bitcoin has uh, been going through a lot of transitions right now with Taproot Schnorr and descriptors and multisig and, and all of that. But we're also carrying with us a legacy of old styles, old designs of how these things work. So how should the new ones work? How can they take advantage of these new technologies? So, um, you know, we've really been focusing on uh, these new Bitcoin uh, architectures. And, you know, what does it mean to have a secure uh, foundation for the ecosystem as a whole? So, um in doing that, we created something we call the Gordian Principles, uh, you know, the independence, privacy, resilience, and openness is really what we're talking about. Now, they all have, you know, deep, you know, underlying things. Um, you know, independence, you know, is everything from supporting user freedom, uh, but also is kind of involuntary oversight, whether or not that's... Um, you know, censorship resistance um, or some kind of uh, coercion or whatever, but also kind of the economic coercion that can happen um, in marketplaces and things of that nature. How do we prevent that privacy? Um, there are other forms of coercion that happen because of, uh, you know, strong identities and, uh, and such. So how can we... Uh, enhance uh, privacy and pseudonymity. So we have a variety of different projects associated with that. Resilience is an interesting one. You know, we, we definitely, security has this paradoxical property of making you um, maybe not less prone to certain kinds of attacks, but it also lowers your resilience uh, and makes you more fragile to other kinds of problems. So how do you balance those? Because um, you really want resilience in both. So a lot of our work, uh, for instance, the Smart Custody book that we came out with two years ago and these projects are to try to cover this very um, uh, uh, interesting challenge of how do we decrease the likelihood of loss in general for regular people. Um, and then finally, uh, openness. Um, you know, infrastructure... Uh, open infrastructure means that we really have to have a, you know, some common things so that if any of us uh, fail, move on, et cetera, that we don't have uh, you know, an ecosystem uh, problem where some major party loses hundreds of millions or even a billion dollars because of mistakes, and that will affect us all. Um, uh, so we have to have a, a strong foundation. But we also need to avoid things like heart bleeds. So one of the things that was really sad for me um, is, you know, a dozen years after I finished SSL uh, 1 and, and TLS 1 and we were now moving on to 1.1 1, 1 and whatever, uh, you know, TLS became boring. We had one person supporting the number one open source project one quarter time. Um, and trillions of dollars of commerce were being used for it, and a little bug creeped in, and some people discovered it and shared it, and, uh, you know, uh, it was, you know, probably uh, actively used uh, to, to steal keys and certificates and other different types of things 
for at, at least six months, if not longer, uh, before somebody discovered it. Um, I don't want to see that happen in the Bitcoin ecosystem where it's a lot more dangerous. Um, so how do we support things for 15 years, 20 years, 50 years? Uh, that is uh, you know, going to be best served not just by open source, but also open development and uh, open infrastructure, which is a little bit more than just open source. So those are the four principles when we look at any of our different uh, tools, uh, open source projects, et cetera. We've attempted to say, hey, this is what we do in independence. This is what this particular tool offers as privacy. This is what this tool offers in resilience. This is what this tool is, offers in openness and uh, share that with others. And we're hoping that it's not just us because we're, well, we'll talk about that later about being a product company versus being a uh, Schnelling point for uh, the ecosystem. Uh, but we're tr trying to encourage others to do the same. Yeah, and you, I mean, you brought it up, you mentioned it, especially with these open source protocols, uh, more specifically this distributed system in Bitcoin, how do you create a acceptable, uh, I don't even know if acceptable is the right word, but a trade-off between security and usability that, that people are happy with and will bring more individuals who are not as tech-savvy as your average early day Bitcoiner are too, to the Bitcoin protocol. And so I guess yeah. an, another thing you mentioned there, not directly, but I think what you're trying to do with these standardizations that lead to interoperability is avoid potential tech debt that could be built up uh, around Bitcoin development, particularly as it pertains to wallet software. Exactly. And that's, you know, an interesting challenge because sometimes, um, uh, you know, early decisions are made. So, I mean, Electrum, uh, you know, one of the first, um, you know, solid uh, wallets outside of Bitcoin Core um, made some decisions um, that they, you know, have to continue to support because they have a, 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 a set of uh, legacy users. Um, which then makes it complicated for everybody else who wants to, you know, uh, interoperate with them in the future or forces some architecture changes or sometimes what I call invisible architectures that, um, uh, you know, can cause long-term problems. So, um, uh, you know, we have to address, you know, there's this interesting problem with open infrastructure is how do you retire it? <laughs> you know, how do you replace uh, the important bits and not leave people behind. Um, it's hard, especially again, I'm trying to think in the terms of decades. Yeah. Decades, maybe centuries, who knows? And, and it's, it's crazy to think of the, this early on in Bitcoin's history of the project 13 years in, even though we're 13 years in the decisions we make today are going to impact people decades from now. Uh, and, and uh, do you think they're, you think there's enough weight uh, on people? I don't want to say consciousness, but do you think people understand the gravity of the the decisions that are being made today to the Bitcoin network that will affect people in the future? Or you think I think we're doing an uh, an okay job at that at the Bitcoin um, consensus layer. You know, I am one of the reasons why I am such a big supporter of Bitcoin is. Um, you know, how the Bitcoin uh, developers and adjacent developers like Lightning, et cetera, 
are thinking about uh, security and how they're thinking about these types of things. Um, but that being said, Bitcoin Core is not a good wallet. Um, so when we start, you know, talking about the broader um, implications of Bitcoin, the broader ecosystem, that's where it gets complicated. And we have centralities, um, or at least, you know, almost duopolies um, up until fairly recently. Um, we have to address that. Yes. And in your opinion, what is the best way to address this? So let's get into like the Gordian suite where are you trying to create standards specifically? Obviously, you have uh, things around like how you produce seeds, how you secure those seeds, QR codes, something as simple as what some people would think is simple in a QR code. Uh, one thing, one recent problem I ran into uh, was trying to recover. Uh, a wallet using a seed phrase on a particular software that wasn't familiar with the derivation path that I produced the the private key with, and so there there was an issue there. And, uh, like yeah. these these pain points. Were- I, yeah, and those pain points are going to get worse. Um, you know, I, I I think one of the lovely innovations um, in Bitcoin is how it handles keys, which basically is it throws them away. Um, <laughs> But early Bitcoin um, software basically just, you know, it randomly created every single individual key separately. And then it had a key management problem of lots and lots of keys and, and, and all of that. So, uh, you know, BIP39 was invented to allow you to create these lists of keys that had great security properties. Um, that being said... Uh, they weren't designed with multi-sig in mind. They weren't designed with uh, various kinds of future-proofing in mind. Last time I looked, um, there were over 40 variations of single-sig derivation paths in Bitcoin between um, uh, you know, different kinds of ways of doing accounts, uh, you know, BIP45 versus 74 versus you know, legacy Electrum, how changes handled, um, gap limits, um, et cetera. Gap limits. And that's a real, um, and it's gotten worse with multi-sig. So if, you know, we are really focused on descriptor-based wallets that use multi-sig, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, very actively trying to encourage some parties to delete their single sig uh, capability from their wallets and you know if if they're a tier three new wallet company do they really need to support legacy i'm not sure they do um you know and i've got some good designs for you know a two of three uh that we would like we would love to see some wallet companies do that for uh, self-sovereign wallets um multi-sig does not necessarily mean multiple people um so, uh, but anyhow, back to the, you know, the, the key issue, um, there is state now that needs to be kept, uh, you know, what we call an account map, it's called different names by the, com- by the community, uh, but it's basically the multi-sig descriptor at minimum now also needs to be saved. Now, fortunately, it's public keys that are in there, but then that can potentially violate your privacy, um, other interesting problems, this is not one that I have a great solution for, is um, multi-sigs all largely are using the 48 derivation for the single key, 
which means the XPUB that you share, say, with CASA for some account, uh, multi-sig account with somebody, and the XPUB uh, using that same Trezor ledger or whatever that you're using with, say, Unchained Capital uh, is exactly the same XPUB, which gives them potentially an opportunity to um, you know, go, oh, what other accounts are out there that this person uses? Now, they need more information. It's not super easy, but it is a weakness um, uh, that we're reusing XPUBs even for privacy. Um, so, you know, these are all the kinds of things that we're trying to identify at Blockchain Commons and see if we can, you know, have some low-hanging fruit to address them or at least raise the issue enough to the community to kind of go, is there... Uh, an emerging consensus that this needs to be solved. And so in that particular case, after talking with a lot of wallet developers and things of that nature, they're kind of like, mm, yeah, we don't like it, but you know, it's not critical right now compared to other problems. And that's fine. So we're not putting a lot of energy into solving it. Interesting. Wolf, would you have anything to add to that? Uh, things we should be Why don't aware you introduce of? yourself a little bit first too. Yeah, sure. I'm Wolf McNally. Uh, Christopher, Christopher and I uh, met, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago now. Uh, Christopher ran a series of, of iPhone slash iOS developer camps uh, in Silicon Valley. And uh, I lived in Los Angeles at the time and attended several of those. And Christopher and I got to know each other and became friends. And when he started up this project, uh, uh, it was a good um, confluence of events. Uh, it turns out I was available to, to work with him. And I guess I'd be, become kind of a blockchain commons de facto lead researcher. Um, and uh, so uh, that basically involves, you know, uh, working with Christopher to identify the issues that um, that wallet and blockchain developers are having, uh, and then figure out, you know, what we can best apply our talents to, and then basically producing research papers and reference implementations and that the reference implementations can uh, be take the form of, of libraries that you can link to or command line tools that you can run or apps. Uh, and I've been an iOS developer as, you know, as, as mentioned, you know, for many years. So, um, uh, so basically, you know, I've been kind of capturing these ideas that we've had as we've identified problems and then um, produced a series of research papers and you can check out uh, our GitHub account uh, where we have all of our research papers listed. Everything we do is open source. So, um, you know, from our command line tools like Seed Tool, which has a similar functionality to um, the, the Seed Tool app I'll be showing you, uh, which is a command line tool and Key Tool, which derives keys and things like that. Uh, also command line um, to, you know, the, the various apps we've done. Um, you know, I've been heavily involved with most of those, although there have been several other major contributors as well who contribute other major uh, apps or pieces of software to blockchain commons. And uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Awesome. And so I guess you guys are talking to a lot of wallet developers and you're trying to build uh, or at least build tools to show, hey, this is the way you should do things and adopt this type of standard. What are, what are the number one thing, uh, things that are coming top of mind to wallet developers? Like, because you know, there's this weird thing too, where you have the, especially with the hardware wallets, you have uh, the individual players who have a profitable business on the hardware side. And, um, and one could argue there is an incentive to create a moat so that more people use their wallet. How do you um, take that into consideration? And then, try yeah. to work within pain points on the software side as well. I mean, I think our biggest ecosystem success has been our UR standards, in particular around PSBT. 
So um, PSBT is a, an incredibly useful uh, format for uh, having a partially signed uh, transaction and uh, or a completely unsigned but assembled ready for other uh, wallets to review and basically go, yes, I'm willing to participate in this and continue. Um, I'll sign my part and pass it on. Um, well, it turns out there are a lot of gotchas because PSBTs, uh, you know, need to be moved from one place to another. And there's information that may be associated with uh, PSBTs but aren't actually in the PSBT itself. Uh, we have different kinds of wallets with different form factors. Um, some people are fine with a USB or even worse, a USB-C cable between their uh, their hardware uh, device and uh, a computer. Others are going, uh, no, we don't want to do that. Um, and, you know, so they're at least trying to air gap it through uh, little uh you know, Java cards, uh, SD cards that have a Java capability. And, uh, um, and then of course, you know, the, the Nirvana we're really kind of going for is true air gaps. Uh, you know, let's not even have the devices communicate electronically directly. Um, that's not to say that QRs are perfect, uh, but they have some, you know, clear advantages then we run into this problem of, gosh, PSBTs can get to be really big. Uh, you know, how do we deal with that? And we found some very, uh, you know, nice sweet spots uh, with, you know, some interesting, you know, design challenges along the way, which Wolf can talk about, uh, that now there's you know, half a dozen wallets that are supporting, um, you know, our bare, B- bare PSBT and we now have two services, CASA and Unchained Capital, that are doing it for uh, transaction coordination where they don't have any of your keys at all. So, um, uh, you know, so this is probably our bi- biggest success. Still a lot more to do. It's still a pain to, uh, you know, s- save keys. Uh, there are definitely issues with state, not just the, the uh, uh, account maps, uh, you know, and descriptors that you might need to have. But, you know, Lightning has some interesting problems with channels and storing that information and and other stuff that we have made some progress on. But, you know, we're looking for more wallet developers to join the community so we can solve it together. Yeah, the, it's PSPTs are a fascinating part of Bitcoin. They're almost magical when you when you send a uh, PSBT for the first time. I usually do it with, I've done it with cold card with the air gapped way where you'd never earn technically air gapped, I guess, if you'd never touched the internet, but you uh, construct the transaction on on the device, move the ST card to the computer, um, or you construct it there, move it back, sign it, and then broadcast it from the computer. It is an involved yep. process. And you imagine, Q, you mentioned QR codes or here to help, and they're they're, diff- they're harder in some ways, but about a lot easier in others. How how do QR codes fit into all this, um, particularly around the communication of the the data size of the PSBT? This I think would be a great segue to Wolf to demonstrate it can be even easier, and we even have some new things that are emerging that make it even easier than what we're going to show you just now. So, but let's let's talk about. Uh, one of the easiest integrations, which is uh, Sparrow Wallet and uh, Seed Tool. Sure, yeah. So um, 
we basically, you know, as my conversations with Christopher have gone on, we've identified kind of pain points in the developer community. And so then I've basically gone off and done the research, uh, written proposals, uh, we've kind of gotten, gotten them uh, reviewed by various people, and then I've implemented the actual code for those. Um, one of the most successful ones has been what we call our, our uh, uniform resource or UR proposal. You've heard of URLs, res uniform resource locators. They point to things on the internet. Our UR proposed standard is, uh, you know, a number of people have adopted it now, so it's a de facto standard in some ways. Um, is a self-contained resource. So it's uh, an actual string of letters, like a, like a URL. Uh, it begins with UR colon, just like URLs begin with UR, URL colon, or HTTP colon, a, a scheme. So there's a scheme of UR colon. And then uh, it includes data. So it's completely self-contained. Uh, and it's designed in specifically, specifically to be efficient when transmitted as QR codes. But QR codes have an inherent limitation of about 4,000 bytes of data uh, in one code, and that's even pushing it because that's really dense. And uh, screens, you know, uh, obviously smaller screens like on a hardware device might have trouble showing such a dense QR code. Cameras, uh, especially like webcams and so on, might have a hard time reading such a dense QR code. So you can't really even approach that 4,000 character limit. Um, but partially signed Bitcoin transactions or PSBTs can be much greater than that because um, the signed transaction itself uh, does bytes because it may have those in it, each of those UTXOs, um, in my... You, I think you just switched uh, microphones. I think so your head... Hear, right? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Hello? If we can hear you. I don't think he can hear can us. Can you hear me? He can't hear us. <laughs> yes, we can hear you, but you can't hear us. I'm hearing... Uh, I think you're hearing me, but I'm not hearing you. Let me try to say my audio here. Sorry. That's correct. That's... I was on a roll there, too. <laughs> can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Yes. Good. Sorry. About Can you hear us? Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. So, so um, partially signed Bitcoin transactions can have a, a lot of UTXOs in them. That adds, and then the signatures themselves add more and more to the size of PSBT. You rapidly outgrow a practical size for a QR code. So we realized that our way of trans uh, of transferring these things through an air gap between a QR code and a camera needed to be able to provide, like, say, a series of QR codes with the message broken up into fragments. But that has a problem too, which is that you know if you just show a chunk of the data, you have to identify what's in the data. You have to identify, you know, uh, and and if you miss fragments because you know QR codes aren't always read properly, then uh, and you show them the QR codes, the same QR codes over and over again, you you get the point of diminishing returns where you're missing that one QR code, but you keep missing it. So we needed a better solution for that. So um, uh, and there's another parallel issue, which is that we want our standard to be able to support all kinds of structured data, not just. PSBTs, for instance, you can put the raw bytes of a PSBT in a QR code. Sure, you can break them into fragments. Sure, but we want to be able to have all kinds of data, like requests and responses, so that one device can request a PSBT of a certain kind, and the other device can provide that. So we can we want to be able to have kind of a networking between devices with air gaps using re requests and responses. So we need ways of storing structured data. So you are standard supports all of that uh, and supports kind of one of the most highly efficient ways of encoding things in QR codes. Um, and so you can actually, all the details are on our, both our GitHub site where you can actually read the papers. Our YouTube channel also has uh, uh, a, you know, a, a high level technical overview of a lot of the technologies, including the ones I've been talking about. But the long and short of it is you can stuff any amount of data you want into a, a UR 
and it will get broken up into an animated QR code using what's called fountain codes, which are a way of avoiding that whole miss that one QR code over and over again because it kind of mixes the data uh, between the, of the whole uh, block of data into each QR code. And it's actually makes it interestingly more and more likely you'll get all the data you need to finish the message uh, as you keep reading QR codes. Um, so, uh, and you know, and again, we have uh, demos of this on the command line. We have uh, 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 test vectors, the people who write it. And we actually had, I think we have six or seven various implementations of the UR library, uh, you know, uh, Swift, Python, I think somebody's done a Rust implementation, uh, the C, C++, and so on. So all these are available for developers to start using today. Um, so uh, we've been developing a number of these technologies. You know, another issue that we, had, that we identified was that you needed to be able to identify binary objects at a glance. Now, humans are not very good, I mean, uh, at identifying binary objects at a glance. A couple bits could be off and you won't notice. Uh, so we needed ways of, of rapidly doing that. Now, you might have seen like emoticons, you know, which are basically these little icons that get generated. I think you see them on Reddit and some other places where, you know, uh, your default account, unless you change your avatar, has this little funny icon and, and it's yours. You know, it, nobody else has one quite like it. Um, we came up with uh, a rather innovative way of doing that uh, called LifeHash. And you can go to lifehash.info and see a live demo of that running in your browser uh, using WebAssembly. So this is also another thing that's totally open sourced. Um, and basically what we use it for is to identify things like uh, seeds, keys, and other kinds of binary objects. And we'll talk more about seeds in a moment. Uh, so um, uh, another issue is that, like Christopher was saying, you know, 39 standard uh, HD keys, hierarchical deterministic keys, let you derive a whole bunch of keys from one master key. Um, but we realized that there's actually a step before that, which is you have to generate the entropy for the master key. So the entropy is random numbers. Um, and that entropy itself is um, useful. Uh, and so if you go take it back one more step, you get what we call a seed. And a seed is just um, cryptographically strong random numbers of some length, uh, like at least 128 bits. From that, you can derive master keys. You can derive from that. You can derive account keys. From that, you can derive uh, address keys. And so there's a whole kind of chain of derivation that can happen that starts with seeds. And so what we wanted is a way of managing seeds in kind of a very general way. And so we came up with seed tool, which is both a command line tool, which lets you derive seeds, ingest them, and transform them. Uh, and then also our iPhone app, which you can actually get uh, in the uh, iPhone app store today. Uh, and you can also get, download the source code, compile it yourself, check it out if you're a developer. Um, and uh, that's what I'm gonna demo. So uh, so we're trying to show, and, actually, and Seed Tool turns out to be a good showcase of a lot of the technologies that, that, that we've uh, been developing, including the animated QR codes, including another one called SSKR, uh, which is a way of splitting your seed up into uh, a number of shares which you can hand out to people and have kind of a social rec key recovery system. Christopher can talk a little bit more about that. Um, and, uh, you know, basically let you, um, you know, spread out that data. So if you ever lose it, you can recover it. Like say, you know, you might have three groups of friends, one for your professional associates, one for your personal, your, your friends, and one for your family. Uh, and you can give out these nine shares and you only have to get back two from two of those groups to actually recover your whole seed, whereas none of the people have enough in those groups, even if they collude to recover your seed. So, um, so SSKR is that technology, and that integrates with the UR stuff, and that's integrated into seed tools. So 
you know, C tool is kind of like, you know, uh, a great showcase of a lot of the stuff we've been working on. Sounds like a Swiss army knife <laughs> for, yeah, in, a, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got, it's got, it's got one major goal, which is to manage your seeds, um, in a secure way and to let you, uh, purpose them for various reasons to derive keys from them, to, um, to respond to requests for seeds or derive keys, keys, things like that, to back up your seeds, to restore seeds, things like that. So seed tool is all about seeds, uh, but, uh, and it's intended to op interoperate with other um, hardware wallets or software wallets like Sparrow Wallet, which I'll be showing how to set up an account using seed tool, managing the seeds and Sparrow Wallet actually managing the account. Um, so, you know, uh, so in, it's, it's, I'd say it's a Swiss army knife in the sense that it shows off a lot of the cool things we've been developing. <laughs> and one thing before we hop into the demo, just to make it clear to anybody listening at home or watching as well, like what is, how would you describe the importance of entropy and how do you create entropy oh, in, <laughs> in seed tool? Because people don't realize this. Uh, they'll, they'll just get uh, yeah. a, a device that can spin up a private public key without editing entropy. And um, Yeah. Well, you want me to talk to that, Christopher? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, random numbers aren't, you know, there's, there's a very funny Dilbert, which basically, you know, they're, they're showing around the office and they're showing Dilbert to, to a desk and there's this monster scene. They're saying one, one, or no, nine, 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 nine. This, and the guy says, this is a random number generator. And, uh, and Dilbert says, well, how do you know they're really random? And he says, well, you can never tell. So um, the idea of creating quality random numbers is actually really hard. Most computers use what they call pseudo random number generators. Uh, which use a seed number you get from somewhere and then generate a very deterministic sequence of numbers. So, um, and many pseudo random number generators have been shown to have both statistical flaws as well as uh, uh, ways that you can manipulate the entropy that goes into them that make them unreliable or hackable. So, um, cryptographically strong random number generators are used by every wallet to create your key because you need a random number to create your private key from which you get your public key. Um, but some people are suspicious of that too. And so they want to actually um, take control of the randomness themselves. If you want to create a truly random key, then you kind of got to do it yourself. You want to have ultimate confidence in that. So some people choose to flip coins or roll dice or draw numbers from well-shuffled packs of, uh, draw cards from well-shuffled packs of uh, cards. Um, and those are actually um, provably, you know, uh, you know, truly random. And so if you generate that entropy yourself, then you can generate the seed from that entropy uh, and key tool supports uh, a seed tool supports that as well. So you can actually start with you can either tell it to use the built-in cryptographically strong random number generator to just poof create you um, uh, a seed, or you can say nope, I want to provide the entropy myself. And you can show that you know the same entropy provides the same seed. So, um, but you generally throw away the entropy, keep the seed, and then derive all your keys from that. Um, but if you generate the entropy yourself, you can have confidence that nobody tampered with it. Also, another, you know, challenge here is that, you know, especially with hardware keys and things of that nature, are you really sure um, that it's a random number um, or that they've done the derivations right to create the seed that you're using? That there isn't some gamesmanship that happens between the pseudo random number, you know, other entropy that's added in and whatever ultimately to your um uh, to the seed that you have. So if you're really wanting to be super careful, I'm not saying, you know, the average Joe ought to, uh, uh, you know, needs to do this, but, you know, you can, um, uh, you know, roll dice and there's some good techniques out there to uh, get everything except the last word 
um, in a in a seed phrase and show that you know maybe on another device. So this is um, oops, uh, this is um, uh, Lethe Kit, which uses uh, yet another version of Seed Tool, um, where you can just put in the dice numbers by typing them into this keyboard, and the result should be at the end the same exact seed as generated by the command line version, where you can look at the code and see, as well as the version that's um, in on your iPhone. So all three of those versions, plus the hand version, all given the same dice, give the, exactly the same seed, and you have some confidence that no games are being played at the, at the lower levels. Um, and uh, that's good. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily do all four of these and then use that dice, but it would give me some confidence that now I can roll dice one last time and have the entropy that I want. And one of the cool things about Lisa Kit is you, you build it with off-the-shelf parts. The, uh, the case is 3D printed, uh, and, you know, you, you can, you know, it's used as Arduino, so you can review the code yourself. You flash it. Uh, and you know you can have total confidence that you, you're basically controlling everything about that, and it has no storage. So when you turn it off, it forgets. Uh, it has those little e-paper screen, which doesn't blank because it just remembers forever. But nothing is secure on that screen once you go back to the home screen. So um, it has no long-term storage and definitely no network connection. So everything you do on it, including rolling your dice, putting your number in, deriving your key, and so on, you know, never leaves the Lethe Kit device. So that's a pretty cool thing about that. That's really cool. Um, she, I should also say Seed Tool is designed, even though it's an iPhone app, um, you can run it on your regular connected iPhone, or you can like go out and get a little iPod Touch. You can uh, install Seed Tool on it, then turn off the network, and then it remains forever then uh, a network non-connected device. You can put it in your safe, keep your seeds in it, um, back up your seeds using SSKR among your friends and family, and have a lot of confidence that even if something happens to that iPod Touch that you might use to find high-value transactions uh, using your seed, um, you know, you basically, uh, you're, you know, you're covered. You know, any number of ways. That's incredible. Uh, being able to to use other hardware to basically just store the software. I mean, let's get into a demo for anybody watching at home. Yeah. Uh, Wolf yeah. has a demo lined up for us uh, just to go through how this works, and then um, we can take. Yeah. So I've got the uh, the blockchain commons research website up here, uh, and uh, you know I just want to kind of scroll through this. These are the research papers we've done. A lot of them have my name on them. There's a few people who've been collaborating with us as well. Um, Lethe Kit and uh, um, Gordian Server and so on were created by other guys, uh, and about I've been working with them. But you know basically this is all open and available for, for people to to look at news, and that's uh, GitHub.com/blockchain-commons/research, um, and so. Um, you know, the, the, the specs for URs and so on are all there. Um, let me, uh, that away. So, um, I've got my iPhone up here, uh, and that's the first thing we'll look at. Um, so let me put that front and center here. Um, so, uh, I'm going to start with C tool and right now I'm actually down into a separate page here. So, um, so basic seed tool gives you a list of seeds. You may never use more than two or three seeds, uh, but I've got a bunch of seeds that I used to test with here. Um, and each seed, you notice that that image, that colored image to the left of each seed, um, that is a life hash. And so again, if you go to lifehash.info, you'll see more information about the algorithm that's used to create those. It's, um, it creates kind of organic looking patterns that are very distinct. So even if you change one little bit of the input, the entire image changes. Cool. Um, and they're also quite memorable. Um, so 
um, the when you drill down into one of these seeds, this is one uh, one of our test vector seeds. Um, you see more detail about it. And um, one of the things you see uh, in addition to the life hash is to the right of it, you see the little seed icon that says what this is, this is a seed. You see that little sequence of hex numbers up there. And that's in a way, for example, um, you know, Christopher and I early, earlier, he transmitted this to me and you know, he said, you know, is it F0B0B2C? I said, yes, um, rather than having to say, oh, is it that purple thing that looks like a doily? Um, so it's more, more precise. And then you can, of course, give your own name to it. Um, scrolling down, you can see other things about this seed that aren't sensitive, like its name, uh, its creation date, any notes. Um, and then there's this yellow button called uh, Authenticate. And this is basically where you access the seed itself and do other things with the, with the derivations because seeds themselves are sensitive. You use them to derive um, private keys and public and private you know, addresses from those. Um, so um, if I tap Authenticate, then it's gonna ask for face ID. So, um, and that basically, you know, ob obviously means I'm the authorized user of this phone. Um, uh, and then there's several different options. You can back up your seed. So there's a couple different ways of doing that. You can back it up as SSCare multi-share, um, or you can back it up as a UR colon crypto seed. Now, remember I mentioned that the UR thing lets you put data into uh, a, a string of characters that's designed to be displayed in a QR code, or ultimately broke, or, or even if it's too long, broken up into multiple QR codes. So let's just say I want to back it up as your crypto seed. So you see that QR code um, that can be scanned by anybody who has seed tool or another tool that can read our, our URs. Um, and uh, uh, if this were too long, that QR code would automatically be animating. And I'll show you an example of that in a little bit. But you can also um, print it. You can say print that, and then you get um, an actual printout that not only has the QR code, but also has the actual hex value of the seeds, um, byte words, then BIP32 words, byte words are another uh, way, uh, technology we developed that gives you four letter uh, word, English words that represent one byte per word. So that's another way of kind of creating a mnemonic. Uh, and then the other uh, metadata about the seed. So uh, you can print that to your printer. You can also say share as you are crypto seed. And you see that this one, I can basically um, copy this to the clipboard or whatever, or whatever. but you see that where it says uh, uh, UR colon crypto seed, that's the actual um, text that would appear in the, uh, in the QR code. So that's one example of, uh, of, you know, have a stack of our technology being used to do something. Another would be uh, if I uh, tap back up and say backup as SSCare multi -share. Oh, oh, we lost. I think we lost, we lost your, your mic. Your connection again. Well, it's going to be getting that back. This is fascinating. So, yeah, I'll, I'll say a little bit, um, you know, while he's uh, uh, coming back, um, you know, I showed you Leafy Kit. So one of the big challenges for, you know, we want to serve the whole community. This is a little tiny 200 um, uh, by 200 display. So when we designed uh, QR, we wanted it to be able to do animated QRs on this very slow processor with this very slow screen um, that only has 200, um, you know, by 200 black and white uh, things. It works. Um, and yeah, it takes a little bit longer, but it's, you know, you can do some, you know, we did, I think we did, a, you know, like 100,000 um, character uh, PSBT with it and it worked. Um, similarly, uh, Wolf, um, uh, worked really hard to make sure that the life hashes, 
you know, which help you recognize things. So I, you know, obviously printed this on a, uh, on a regular piece of paper. Um, uh, so there's no color there, but it's recognizably the same uh, thing as the as the purple one. So even though I don't even have necessarily the same display, it has a, a design for high contrast that lets you um, uh, do things. And we also don't want to lock people in, so we support you know uh, all of the you know uh, you know good old fashioned uh, BIP thirty nine and and. Uh, but sometimes the dates are really useful to know when it was created and the notes come along with it as well. So I can say, hey, you know, uh, this was only used with some obscure wallet that I, you know, don't use anymore, but I'm keeping it because it's got some dust on it. Because I know I have some dust from when Bitcoin was, uh, uh, you know, $30 that all of a sudden, you know, I, I came back to an old wallet and it's saying, gosh, I've got 500 bucks there. <laughs> you know, in dust. Um, so, um, uh, you know, you can save all those. Let's see if uh, Wolf's microphone's back. Nope. Uh, can't hear you, Wolf. Nope. No wallet. Um, nope. Okay. So, um, uh, I want to, res- what time did you want to run till? So- got, I've got plenty of time on this end, uh, but one thing, Okay. I mean, Sure. So we'll let him work on that for a moment. Um, you know, so you can kind of see what we're trying to do in general. And, uh, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, uh, you know, this is evolving as we go along. So one of the challenges with PSVTs, I know you ran into this with cold card is, um, uh, you know, how do I uh, coordinate between the transaction coordinator on your computer, which because it has to have all the inputs for your uh, transaction, and the only way it can get it is from the net. And then you have to, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, get that onto your phone uh, or onto your device. In the case of a cold card, um, but bef- but when you start talking about multi-sig and descriptor wallets, well. That means you might need to get, uh, you know, a key, you know, an XPUB from Casa. You might need to get a, a, another XPUB from your, your Trezor. And uh, you want a, another XPUB from your wife. Um, can you hear me now? You know, now we can. So that becomes a challenge. Okay. So um, our emerging stuff lets you, hand, you know, make that part, the whole setup, before the PSBT happens, a lot easier. So... We'll show crypto account in a second. So go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. So I apologize for that. Um, if this keeps happening, I'll switch. I, I switched to a different microphone, actually. So hopefully this one will uh, not cut out on me. Um, so, uh, yeah. So we were talking about SSKR. Uh, and um, the actual, uh, as I mentioned before, SSKR breaks up your seed or whatever data you want into chunks that can be distributed to various people. And so you can say there's, you know, if, you, if I have, you know, five people, and I want to share that among five people, then I can say, okay, three of five. And you can see you can, I have one group of, of uh, uh, um, uh, five shares with a threshold of three. That means any three of these five shares can reconstruct the key. So let's assume that's what I want to do. I say next. And then basically you can either print the shares, you can share them all as byte words, or you can share them as UR crypto SSKR. That's another kind of UR. Again, URs can be used for any kind of data. Um, and so, for example, if I wanted to print them, then I get these coupons that basically each have a QR code on them. They have 
um, some bite words, but they don't have the actual seed. They, they just have a chunk of the seed, a share of the seed. There's actually two pages here because there's five shares and there's four per page. So I can cut them up and I can actually physically hand them to other people. And then when I get back three of these from anybody I've given them to, then I can use seed tool to reconstruct them. Um, and so uh, let's, uh, but you know, I'm gonna move forward in terms of demonstrating. So seed tool has a scan function that lets you scan individual seeds or SSKRs uh, or requests for seeds or, de or, or derived keys. It's, there's actually a lot there. So let's go back to the main um, seed and let's say, um, let's say I want to use Sparrow Wallet to have an account and I don't, but I don't want, but Sparrow Wallet is connected to the internet. And SparrowWall is on my uh, on my computer that's connected to the internet. It's you know possibly has security vulnerabilities, or whatever. I want to keep my seeds from which my private keys are derived um, absolutely offline. And so let's say I have an iPod Touch. My iPhone will stand in for that right now, where I have my seeds. Um, and let's say I'm going to use uh, this one, uh, uh, the dark purple Aqua Love seed, uh, which again is just um, it's a sequence of random numbers, uh, but it's a unique sequence that I've generated. Um, and uh, so I'm going to tell, I want to authenticate, uh, and then I'm going to say, derive a key. Now I can either drive a cosigner private key, which is, uh, again, um, a, uh, a standard from blockchain commons of how to do multi, uh, sig, uh, cosigners, but I'm going to go to the other key derivations in this case. And this is, um, uh, a fairly involved page here, but it starts, but it's a workflow. It starts with the C at the top. You give it a certain amount of parameters, and then you can see there's the private HD key that's been generated. Uh, there's the public HD key and below that an address. And so you can just use that address and, and receive, receive it there. But you can say whether you want this asset to be a Bitcoin address or an Ethereum address. If you do an Ethereum, then you can see it's switched over to Ethereum's style of, uh, of identifying accounts or, uh, or private keys. Um, let's say I want it <clears throat> Bitcoin mainnet and I, you can derive, you know, cosigner paths, uh, or SegWit paths, or you can enter your own custom paths. Um, so I'm going to keep it on master key, and I'm going to go down here where it says secondary derivation. Now I can either generate the public key, which you see is what's being is what's below the public HD key, or I can set it for an output descriptor. Uh, the Bitcoin output descriptors are a way of describing a uh, a, a range of uh, of uh, of ways to derive uh, other public keys. Or there's the account descriptor, which is a whole bundle of output descriptors. And so uh, an account descriptor in this case, you give it an account number. And then the last step below is that says, here's your account descriptor. And it, it's a long UR. So in this case, I'm going to show it as a QR code. And you can see that it's now an animating QR code. This is a longer QR code that's been broken up into chunks. It contains a bundle of output descriptors. And this is something that, um, that other um, uh, wallet developers can write code using our open source implementations to, to read. So I'm going to use Sparrow Wallet here. Sparrow Wallet uh, developed by Craig Raw. Um, is, uh, has, uh, is one of the first to support our technologies. So I've got no accounts right now, so I'm going to tell it to, I want to create a, uh, a new wallet. And I'm going to call it Arcane Commons. I'm going to create that wallet. And now it's going to sh say that it currently doesn't have an actual um, key, key. It needs a public key because remember the public key is going to be on my laptop. There's going to be no private keys on my laptop. So I'm going to say I want to connect an air gap hard, hardware wallet. And now um, Sparrow supports a number of different ones. 
And uh, if this were in light mode, then you should see our logo better, but C-Tool is one of them. Um, and uh, I just put in dark mode before the podcast, and now, I've, now I should suggest to Craig that he should make these stand out better. Um, so anyway, so uh, see, um, Sparrow Wallet helpfully gives you details about how to derive these. Now, I just did this uh, on C-Tool. You can, still see, you can still see it's animating back there. And like I said, this is a fountain code. I can actually pick up anywhere within the sequence, and you can dip into the fountain and pick up from the stream and read the whole thing. So I'm going to say I want to scan it. And um, let's see here. Okay, so this is using my webcam. So I'm going to hold this up. Blind here. Other, yeah. other, yeah. There we go. Yeah, other left, right backwards. There, you see that progress bar. Mm-hmm. So it read several of the QR codes starting anywhere, and now, as you can see, it has an XPub here, and that was derived from the seed, and it picked which one it wanted. It wanted a uh, a uh, witness pub, uh, public key hash coming from a seed tool, and so this is that how it derived that key and how the wallets to use that key. So. Um, now, when I say apply, I can just have no password on this one. Now, basically, I have an account. Here's the transactions. Now, if there were any actual um, transactions on this, it would go out, you know, uh, Sparrow Wallet, because it's connected to the internet, would go out and do them. Now, when, um, uh, since I don't have any transactions on this, uh, I'm, I'm not going to carry through and do a PSBT. But then what you do is you would construct a partially signed Bitcoin transaction from the balances, from the UTXOs, on this account, then you would transmit a, uh, a PSBT back to seed tool that would then recognize, oh, it's asking for the seed that I already have. So I'm going to sign that PSBT and send back the signed PSBT back to Sparrow Wallet. And then Sparrow Wallet can put that onto the network. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, there's basically a kind of a conversation between your online hot wallet, which only has public keys, and seed tool, which uh, only has the seeds and can derive private keys on, on, on demand, um, cool. but does so in a highly secure way. Would Sparrow even be a hot wallet in this case, or would it be a watch-only wallet? That, this is a watch-only. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be considered a watch-only wallet. Yeah. So it's but again, of- there are different scenarios. I mean, part of what we're trying to figure, you know, we are with smart custody and some of our ether- efforts trying to uh, make it easier for people to consider, you know, what is the right scenarios for things? So you could have one key on your Mac, one key on your phone, and one key in an SSKR among your friends in a two of three multi-sig. So um, uh, that means that there's no single points of failure. Your, your Mac could die, um, you know, you lose your iCloud account or whatever. Well, you can go to your friends and your phone and still recover it. Um, you uh, can, uh, you know, you know you're, you're not all nine of your friends abandon you. Uh, you can still recover. Uh, your, your iPhone can die. You can still recover. So that's back to those Gordian principles of resilience. Um, and, but the workflow is exactly the same. I need to give you uh, a, uh, an XPUB. And there are also shortcuts. So like this is a, a special uh, shortcut. Um, so if, I, if you use Seed Tool, oops, where's the camera? Uh, if you use Seed Tool with this, this is a request that says, please give me an XPUB. And if, um, uh, you know, if uh, Wolf scanned that, it would basically say, hey, 
somebody's asking for an X-Pub. Um, do you want to give them an X-Pub? And if you do, which seed do you want to give it? And you choose, and it will streamline the whole process of setting up the accounts and all that kind of stuff. So that's uh, and then when the you later on you receive a PSBT to be signed, it says, oh, yes, I have the seed. Do you want me to sign the UTXOs of this PSBT that I know how to sign? So it's entirely within yep. the user's control. Yeah, and it's, it seems like a much better user experience, particularly with the QR codes, because now I'm thinking, like, I just spun up a BTC Pay server and took an XPUB from uh, a hardware wallet and copy-pasted it into uh, the BTC Pay server interface where I, now what you just described and what you just demoed, Wolf, would be much easier if BTC Pay server is just like, let me scan a QR code. I just held up yes. uh, an XPUB from... Exactly. And, and that's more, and it gets even, that's more like secure the, too, right? Switching BTC Pay to a multi-sig. I want this year's donations to Blockchain Commons on BTC Pay to go to a multi-sig account. Um, that has greater resilience and, you know, single points of failure, et cetera. And it's kind of hard to set up a multi-sig with BTC pay. I mean, it's doable. Um, but all I would have to do with, uh, with uh, the QR thing is it would basically say, here's what I need to do a multi-sig. And, you know, it would present the, the first QR code in a request and it would go through the different things. And I would do my different wallets. I'd do my foundation devices and I'd do my... Um, you know, a Sparrow or Blue Wallet or, you know, whatever else out there is there for my multi-sigs. And then at some point, uh, BTC Pay says, hey, I have everything I need. I'm ready to start uh, being your uh, uh, your invoices because uh, I have all the XPUBs I need. Yeah, it's crazy. Again, like I said in the beginning of the episode, before we started recording, I mean, what you guys are building is very much underappreciated in the space right now. I don't think people, particularly the... I don't call them laymen, but your non-technical Bitcoiner uh, is just a casual listener, probably doesn't understand how important these types of tools are. Uh, well, obviously, we're, we're working with primarily wallet developers and, and you know, people who are working you know, more core towards Bitcoin technologies, but we want this to trickle down to all the end users. You know, right now, like I say, if you're using Sparrow Wallet today, you can use Seed Tool to keep your seeds, and, and, and Sparrow Wallet doesn't have to manage anything private. So... But, you know, there's no reason why people can't create seed managers, uh, you know, cold wallets, things like that, that use all of our technologies to do the same thing uh, and even, you know, you know and, and add their own secret sauce. So, um, because everything we're doing is open source and we're hoping that uh, wallet developers and so on will see that what we're doing is valuable uh, and support, support the blockchain commons because, you know, we're nonprofit and we're, we're basically trying to create a better world together uh, and there's still plenty of room to com compete. <laughs> well, Number one, thank you for building all this and doing it the right way. And number two, I think, like we said earlier, again, like we need to avoid as much potential tech debt as possible. So getting as many wallet providers or wallet software developers on these standards as quickly as possible is just going to make scaling much easier and make loss of Bitcoin or like the thought, because that's a lot of, a lot of people think they lose Bitcoin and they just don't understand that they're interacting with the wallet software. It doesn't know how to find their derivation path. They probably haven't lost it. Yep. They just can't find the derivation path where, where it's hidden. Yep. And we are trying to work on those two things. The, the project that uh, Wolf has been working on this week is called Gordian Recovery, um, uh, which specifically is designed to 
you go through the 40 plus uh, different common paths and gap limits and things of that nature to see, gosh, is there anything out there for you? And again, you know, we since we're an ecosystem organization, you know, I don't want to compete with Sparrow or any of the others. But if I can, if we can create kind of a universal process of discovery to allow you to uh, um, uh, recover, that's useful for the whole ecosystem. And then you can recover it with your foundation devices, or you can recover it with, um, you know, any of the other uh, uh, people that are supporting the, the standards. Um, and we think that's important. Um, and then we obviously we need to carry this to Lightning. Lightning has some additional challenges, uh, state channels and things of that nature um, uh, are kind of hard to do with with uh, hardware wallets. Um, There's some interesting uh, new approaches for that. And then, of course, we have to keep current. There's Taproot and Schnorr and, and um, all that. So, Yeah, and then on top of that, there's new technologies that could probably be implemented into these standards you're building. One, I couldn't stop thinking about the cold card I know is working on and Blue Wallet already has enabled to a certain extent as NFC capabilities. Is that something that excites you guys or that you would stay away from from a security perspective? I have a mixed um, thing there. I, I think it is something that we're going to need to support. Um, you know, if I'm got, you know, five, 10,000, I mean, it'd be different for everybody. You know, somebody in India will have a very different, you know, number for that. Um, the convenience of NFC is amazing. Um, uh, the, um, uh, still doesn't solve the multi-sig problem. It just, it makes the single signature problem easier. Um, makes, you know, this back and forth that, uh, that, um, uh, Wolf and I were just demonstrating, uh, easier. Uh, so yeah, let's do it for there. If it's not the, if it doesn't, if that key on that NFC doesn't have uh, total custody of your funds. It's just a participant in a larger um, uh, uh, multi-sig and the threat model against it. And you know exactly what it is. I might put more money on it. Uh, but, you know, if I'm trying to save money for my children and my grandchildren and I am hodling for, you know, and never plan to sell for a decade or more, no, I'm going to use something that doesn't use an NFC chip, which is, you know, could be potentially supply chain compromised and other different mm-hmm. things of that nature. So it's all about thinking about threats. And, you know, we, we have a book free uh, called Smart Custody. You go to smartcustody.com and download the old version. You go to GitHub, you can see some new chapters that we're going to be adding to it for Smart Custody 2.0. But, you know, how do we explain this to regular people is hard. You know, so I wouldn't say we have a whole chapter on how do you do a threat model. Um, and, you know, my basic argument is, you know, don't do this unless you've got a significant amount of money in, in, uh, in, uh, of your net worth in Bitcoin. If you do, you know, spend a couple of hours to do the exercise we have you walk through. Uh, um, and, uh, but if we can figure out how to make that easier and avoid some of those things, create some common scenarios that everybody can use, uh, help you understand how to make choices, whether or not you're a brand new user um, who, you know, doesn't know how to make decisions or whether or not, you know, you're Avanti Bank, another one of our patrons who is, you know, potentially, uh, you know, storing 
uh, billions of dollars worth of, of funds, uh, you know, as they uh, grow. So, you know, those are very different threat models. We want to be able to help make that easier. No, thank you again for, for doing that because it's imperative. And that's, that's what I wonder as we're having the discussion, like, is, do you think there needs to be pressure put on wallet developers from Bitcoin users to, I don't want to say get in line, but to work towards the standards that you guys are working towards? Like what, like, I guess to steel man, what well, would a wallet provide? If you use a wallet, if you, yeah, if you use a wallet and you think that, you know, you've seen some technologies here or you go to our YouTube channel, watch our technology overview. If you think your wallet ought to support these things, well, there's nothing stopping people. It's all, it's all open source. But if they feel like, well, this isn't quite right, there's something that is missing from this or that we need to add and we'd like to integrate with this. Well, you know, we're available to work with wallet developers to expand the technologies in the directions that benefit the whole community. Uh, and, you know, and so that's, that's what we're here for. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I wouldn't put it in terms of putting pressure on them, but, you know, ask for what you want. Uh, and if, you know, if more interoperability, more support for air gap standards, we're also working on, uh, Tor gap standards where thing, where communication takes place over the, uh, the Tor, the onion router network, uh, for, you know, even though it's connected through the internet, it's much more secure and much more private. Um, so we're going to be doing products that projects that use that as well. We already have some. Uh, and you know these things are are all about the resilience of the community and the privacy of the community. So um, if you want that, ask for it and and tell and tell people that we exist and that you know that we can help. Yeah, that's what I hope. And 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 we deserve the support. You know, and it's you know some of these companies are making you know millions and millions of dollars. Um, you know, especially if we talk about the tier one wallets. Uh, you know say, hey, you know, support these, uh, you know, these types of things, not just in your code, but you've got the money, support them financially, because, you know, we want these standards to be around 10 years from now. If somebody, um, you know, basically says, gosh, there's this weird little trick you can do here that we didn't anticipate, um, you know, we need to be able to fix it fast and deploy it to the whole ecosystem in the same way um, that, you know, we were able to do in the early days of SSL when there were lots of people supporting uh, TLS. But then after 15 years, you know, it was down to one quarter time of one person. We don't want to get to that point. We need to create a base that can last for decades. Well, I'm happy you brought the TLS SSL experience up, Chris, because that's what I wanted to sort of end the conversation. I was like, what are the lessons learned from that uh, open protocol project that you worked on for quite some time. I, obviously, you've mentioned the fact that it's been it's at the point where you someone argue that it's completely neglected, which you don't want to see, especially if there's trillions of dollars of value flowing through it to a certain extent. Uh, what did what did you see during those projects that you want to avoid in Bitcoin at all cost? Is Bitcoin doing? Well, we could probably do a whole podcast on that. Um, <laughs> The, you know, some of the early things are, um, I personally was shocked that it, uh, so TLS 1.3, which came out in uh, 2018, end of 2018, was almost 20 years after, uh, if it had been out one more month later, it would have been 20 years after I finished TLS 1.0. I never thought it would take so long. And to, realistically, TLS 1.3 really was, 
TLS 2.0 or SSL 4.0. I don't know. You know, the numbers kind of get confusing after time. Um, uh, but, you know, there was there's no pressure to um, uh, there isn't sufficient pressure to upgrade. So something I've encouraged uh, other standards, I'm one of the co-authors now of the Decentralized Identifier Standard that W3C is getting close to finalizing on and verifiable credentials and things of that nature is things like expiration dates. So yeah, maybe somebody will use a Cypher suite that is expired. Um, but you know, if, uh, you know, uh, some investor or somebody else comes along and says, hey, you, know, you just lost uh, you know, a billion dollars of your stock value because you know, you're supporting things that were expired, you know, you know, they can protect their, um, uh, their wealth that way. So, um, uh, you know, for irresponsible uh, stuff. I mean, I mean it, it's hard. Um, you know, uh, you know I, I'm sure that Tim Dirks at Google, who was my co-author of, the, of TLS 1.0, you know, would have a, you know, a, a different position there. But I think that the, you know, the arguments are sound that we can do better. Another element that I think is real interesting is although decentralization as, a, a, as we know it today as a term of art in our industry – um, uh, we would say that TLS is centralized, right? You know, it depends on certificates. Certificates then depend on a, on a, on a root of trust. But you have to recognize back then, it, we were trying to decentralize against a monopoly of Microsoft. Um, you know, a lot of what, you know, my job as uh, a standards leader was, was to say, Hey Microsoft, you've got to you know not be one ring rule them all. You need to cooperate with the rest of us. Um, and you know we were able to eventually uh, um, you know force them to participate in the commons so that we could all work together. And that was a form of decentralization. Um, uh, but centralization always creeps back in. I mean, when, when SSL and TLS were first uh, deployed, we thought, oh, well, there are lots of CAs, you know, and there's nothing that stops uh, the Internet from having multiple uh, DNS routes. Um, a lot of these different types of things were allowed, you know, for, for uh, you know, maybe not truly decentralized, but distributed choices. Uh, but then over time, you know, VeriSign acquired a lot of the secondary CAs. Then ultimately the browser companies discovered, oh gosh, you know, uh, the users don't need to decide what CA to use. We're going to decide for them. And uh, so centralization creeped back in. Um, I believe that centralization can creep back into Bitcoin, Ethereum, into all of these different uh, protocols because I honestly do not believe there's such a thing as perfect decentralization. It may be, uh, I, I can't prove it, um, but it may be impossible because if because some parts of decentralization conflict with other uh, rubrics of decentralization. Um, so, you know, we have to balance those. We have to be able to allow people to make some choices there uh, uh, to be able to make good decisions in the future. Yeah. I think one of the ways we see uh, centralization creeping into Bitcoin, correct me if I'm wrong, Christopher, is like the mining pools that become dominant and things like that. And so when they gain a certain amount of hashing power, they they basically are a kind of centralized uh, authority at that point. Um, and so we try to, you know, the community tries to balance that out. Does that sound right? 
Yeah. And, but it's other things. I mean, you know, so mining pools and obvious, you know, we can, you know, uh, we're blockchain commons is not involved in kind of a lot of the mining conversations. Um, uh, for different reasons. Uh, it's not a place where we can make a difference. But, you know, if we were all using, uh, you know, Ledger and Ledger clones, um, you know, we would not uh, have much innovation. Um, and, you know, when Ledger decided, I mean, I'm sorry, picking on Ledger, they have sponsored <laughs> watching common stuff in the, fa- in the past, but they're the biggest player out there. Um, you know, over time, there can become incentives for, you know, Ledger to start throwing its weight around, you know, oh, no, we don't want uh, Taproot or we don't want, you know, whatever the next latest thing is. Um, and then it doesn't happen. And so that's another form of centrality is, you know, lock in, uh, being locked into old choices. Uh, so we want to allow for innovation. Um uh, but we have to be cautious because, you know, in the end, it's the consumer sometimes pays the price for innovation. So, like, one of the things when uh, we were talking earlier about talking to your wallet vendors about supporting some of these different things, you know, uh, Blockchain Commons has limited resources, you know, you know, uh, you know a couple of different engineers, a uh, num- number of volunteers, etc. So we have to prioritize things. I prioritize things when two wallet companies want it. So when somebody comes to me, as has happened recently, going, gosh, we've really got to solve this problem in the silicon level uh, where, uh, you know, we would like to have elliptic curve done on the chip uh, rather than in code on a secondary less secure chip. Um, uh, You know, if I've got two companies that are interested in that problem, um, then that's something that sort of triggers, okay, Let's maybe do some research on this. Let's, you know, identify the use cases. Where are the low-hanging fruit? You know, who else might we partner with or whatever? But my, the signal that I need is that two companies want it. Um, so like with the PSBT, uh, you know, uh, Kobo Vault, which no longer is actively supporting, uh, you know, they've been um, – Another company's taken over their product. And Blue Wallet, basically, they ran fast and implemented our very first preliminary uh, uh, version of, uh, of our PSBT stuff um, way before we expected it to. But that was a signal from the marketplace that interoperability was desirable. And so we put a lot more effort into PSBTs and finalizing it and the versions that you see today um, uh, are, you know, because more than one company are involved. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a fun space to play in. Uh, there are yeah. big problems, big problems to solve. There's uh, obviously on the wallet side too, there's unfortunately, or for some reason or another, ego tends to, to pop into, uh, the conversation and, Again, like I think what you guys are working on is deeply underappreciated. And I think getting these standards out there as quickly as possible, because if we, what we assume is going to happen in terms of Bitcoin adoption is going to continue to go up is what I assume that we're assuming. Uh, you're going to have uh, not only individuals getting Bitcoin, but people building on Bitcoin and being able to quickly create, not, not necessarily quickly, but create a standardization across certain processes that, that make it so... Um, people aren't just building on things that are never going to be able to be interacted with is, is massive. And it does seem like you guys aren't getting enough shine. And so like, how can we, 
as a TFTC community, like help you guys uh, get more attention um, and more funding and more conversations going throughout uh, the user's world. Well, one, of the easiest, one of the easiest ways is if you have a Bitcoin account, I mean, excuse me, a GitHub account, um, is support us through GitHub. You know, uh, they're uh, a $20 a month uh, patronage makes a difference for us. Um, so uh, we're at the point now where I can hire, you know, a half an engineer um, uh, FTEs off of our GitHub revenues. Um, obviously, we accept Bitcoin through BTC Pay. Uh, you know, we've received grants from uh, Human Rights Foundation and others. So, in, you know, encourage these organizations to still do so. Um, but also, you know, you can volunteer, let's say, you know, I mean, one of my challenges, I'm the executive director and principal architect, which means I'm spending far too much time, uh, uh, you know, coordinating, trying to get grants, talking to different people, writing, uh, you know, um, uh, various people, you know, volunteer to be in, uh, you know, to work with us on these types of things. Or if you're a coder or a, a writer, help us uh you know, write better documentation. One of our uh, uh, very successful projects uh, this year was to translate our Bitcoin course to Spanish and uh, Portuguese. I would love to see an Italian version of the course. Um, uh, some of our other material, even if you're not, you know, kind of at the level of doing Bitcoin core command line stuff, you know, we have other documents that could be translated or be updated or made easier and more accessible to people. Um, so there's a lot of volunteer opportunities as well. Get on it, freaks. Doing very important work here. I guess before we wrap up here, is that we've been deep into the technical details of the project and what you guys have been working on within it, but what are your views for Bitcoin's future? Are you optimistic that it will succeed and continue to succeed? Do you think it's an imperative? How, and why are you working on what you guys are doing outside of creating standards? so other people can play well, nicely together. Um, well, you know, uh, obviously, uh, I like to, it's not really a brag because it's also kind of a, a shame because, you know, the first Bitcoin I ever purchased were for under 10 cents on Mt. Gox way back when. If I'd never sold any, I'd be set for life, but I did. So I'm not I actually lived off of Bitcoin for a year while working on a, a startup idea that didn't really take off. But, um, but uh, what I have left... I'm holding on to, uh, and I've always believed that that the the, the future of Bitcoin is bright. I, I deeply believe that it's a a, a world changing technology, and uh, I'm really honored that uh, Christopher asked me to work with him on Blockchain Commons because it's benefiting everybody uh, in helping that technology change the world. Yeah, for me, what I think the, probably one of the biggest things is. Um, Obviously, you know, I have some Bitcoin from my work at Blockstream and, and other stuff, but Blockchain Commons uh, largely is a Bitcoin organization in that we pay everybody with Bitcoin, um, you know, as much as possible. You know, we don't want fiat. Um, I mean, yeah, I, you know, GitHub is easy and convenient for those people who want to do $20 a month or whatever. Um, you know, I would love to be able to have, be able to have something like that for, uh, for Bitcoin in the future. Um, but because of that, you know, the fact that Bitcoin's down right now or up or whatever, you know, it has an impact on us, but not nearly as much. I mean, basically about as much Bitcoin went in this year as went out. 
So we're, I consider, and we have new technologies and new capabilities. I can, I figure that's a win. I don't care as much about the up and down. And I would say, you know, when I, I, you can find an old video of me uh, talking about introducing Bitcoin or whatever from 2015 or 2014. And I'm kind of going, oh, you know, it's kind of stable right now at 30, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and, um, you know, I, I, I'm just not thinking about Bitcoin in, in, you know, versus fiat. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It's the way we're going to be transacting and uh, interacting with people around the world. And at some point, you know, you know, obviously not this year, uh, you know, we may no longer even be referring to a fiat value. I will pay X Bitcoin an hour for the, for the professional, you know, cryptographic protocol engineering work that we do. Um, uh, so that's it's, the future. It's pretty bullish. I'm very excited to hear because usually I have developers working on like the the nitty gritty, and they're some of the most bearish people I've ever met because they know how <laughs> things like tech debt and trying to make all this interoperable. So I'm very happy to yeah. see that you guys are optimistic about the future of the protocol. And again, thank you for all the work that you guys do. It's underappreciated and it's very high leverage in terms of making it so future Bitcoin users, not only Bitcoin users today, but some that haven't even been born yet are able to um, leverage mm-hmm. software that can work um, interoperably, which is imperative if, if you actually want to scale this thing to the masses. Yeah. Well, thank you for having us. And, um, um, you know, when we have the next major release of something, we'll be glad to demo it. Or if you've got some specific thing you want us to look at, I'll let us know. Yeah, no, I'd love to have you guys back on. If you're ever in Austin, please let me know. I'd love to meet up in person. Uh, you got to get out to a BitDevs meetup in Austin. I've, uh, I've been to a couple, so we'll have to do it again. Oh, hell yeah. Um, all right, where can we find you guys? Uh, where can we find out more information about the Bitcoin Commons? Yeah, blockchaincommons.com uh, has our uh, is our main website. Uh, obviously, we're a developer organization, so our most of our work is on GitHub Blockchain Commons, um, and uh, there's six you know links at the top that have the, our most important projects there. Um, uh, you can go to smartcustody.com to get uh, uh, the book, which still I I still think it's you know if you're you know, kind of a, a intro ledger class um, single sig user still, I think, has the the safest uh, process for doing a single sig uh, for Bitcoin uh, cold storage. Uh, so that's a free book, uh, smartcustody.com. And then if you want to, you know, uh, you know, play around with LifeHash, LifeHash.info. Uh, we didn't talk about TorGap, um, but we're also, you know, very... Uh, uh, active in trying to figure out how to leverage uh, the privacy tech, those privacy technologies. So we have something called Spotbit. So Spotbit.info is a decentralized. It's more distributed than decentralized. We want it to be de- decentralized uh, price server for Bitcoin. So it basically looks at you know uh, you know fifty plus uh, different price uh, servers and volumes around the world and allows you to either use our data or you it's an open source thing you can go put it on a $5 VPS somewhere and you can decide how you want to price Bitcoin versus around the world. Uh, Wolf? And you can access it through Tor. 
Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's completely so, right. So yeah. So our Gordian recovery tool that uh, I'm working on now, which will also be an iPhone app, uh, will use Spotbit to get prices. So you'll be able to, for example, report on the historical prices that you acquired Bitcoin at for your tax records, things like that, as well as recover and and possibly even sweep accounts uh, eventually. Although again, it's uh, it's an online tool, so it doesn't have to handle any private keys. Um, you can have it, you know, for example, you will to put uh, a bit 39 that you don't know what's on it. It'll, it'll find all the things that might be there on the account. It'll create a PSBT. You can send that over to seed tool for signing, send it back and sweep that account to something else. So um, the idea is there's a clear, very clear separate, separate uh, separation of interest. If you're doing uh, a tax return or whatever, and you need, you know, like uh, information for capital gains, uh, you will use Spotbit through Tor to get pricing on, on those things. So you can document uh, your transactions. So, you know, that's, again, very clear separation of concerns and upholding the Gordian principles at every step. Yep. Hell yeah. Freaks, if you're listening, go check all this out. We're going to link to as much of this as we can in the show notes. And just want to thank you again, Christopher and Wolf, for the work that you're doing, for coming on. Uh, can't wait to do it again. Very excited to see uh, what you guys produce going forward. Thank, thank you. you. All right. That's all we got this week, Freaks. Peace and love. Okay.